Welcome to the Legacy Nashville podcast. We are so grateful that you've taken the time out of your day or night to tune in. We pray that this message encourages you to love God, love people, and change the world. Now, let's get to the message. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2 through 11. We'll stop a couple of times, but let's read it out loud together. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, I want to point out John is asking an Advent question. What does Advent mean? Advent means the arrival. So John the Baptist is actually asking an Advent question. He's saying, are you the one who, who has Advented? Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another to Advent? Are we looking for another person to arrive? Verse four, and Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. Let's examine that real quick. He didn't say, go tell John what I said. He's saying, go and tell John not only what you've heard, This is not secondhand information. I want you to go back to John the Baptist in prison and I want you to tell him, I want you to witness, I want you to testify to what it is that you see because this is not secondhand information. These are eyewitness testimonies. Encourage him with what you hear and see. Verse five, let's read together. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We gotta read this again, because this is really, really pivotal. Verse six, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Verse seven, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. The title of the sermon today, church, is Finding Joy in What God Doesn't Do. Finding Joy in What God Doesn't Do. Before you're seated, just lay hands on yourself. Let's pray together. Lord, we invite the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask for the anointing of God to rest upon us as we receive your words today. We know that you have the words of eternal life and no others. So, Lord, we receive it. We ask for a spirit of revelation and transformation to rest on us that you might form us more into your image today. And also help me, Lord, uh, to preach and teach and the way that blesses you. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Finding joy in what God doesn't do. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I personally love any stories about my guy, John the Baptist. Anybody else in here, you like John the Baptist? I love John the Baptist. I mean, this guy, he is an inspiration to me as a preacher. And I think that he was also a hero of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus really likes John the Baptist. And so what we're reading today in Matthew chapter 11 is a clear articulation of how heaven feels about John the Baptist as Jesus prophesies and proclaims the truth about John's identity and John's assignment. Jesus tells us three things about John in this passage. Number one, Jesus tells us that John is a prophet. He goes on in verse nine to say, and even more than a prophet. And I don't know exactly what that means, but that's a pretty high compliment coming from Jesus about a human being. He is not only a prophet, but he is also more than a prophet. And I think maybe that leads us to the second bullet point, which is John's not only a prophet, but John is also a pioneer. John has been handpicked by God to be the forerunner for his son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That is a high, high compliment and a huge assignment, which leads us to the third thing that Jesus says about John, which this is astonishing. Jesus says that John is the greatest human being to ever walk the face of planet earth. That is a high compliment. How many of you would like to receive a high compliment like that directly from Jesus? There has been nobody, no other human being that has ever been born into human history is as great as my guy, John the Baptist. He is a prophet, he is a pioneer, and he is the greatest human being to ever be born. So we know uh, from this description that John is pretty awesome. Would you guys agree? John is the definition of a mighty man of God. John is extremely powerful. John is very anointed. John is blessed and highly favored. I mean, he's all the things, which is why I would say that John is a true legend. You know, kids these days, they compliment each other. You're a legend, bro. But like John the Baptist is a legend in the truest sense of the term, which is why whenever John the Baptist's disciples depart and Jesus begins to prophetically address the crowds, he starts asking them very challenging questions. He starts to defend his homie, John the Baptist. Who do you guys think John the Baptist is? You notice this? I, I love it. I love it. Jesus just gets a little aggressive with the crowds. Who do you guys think that John the Baptist is? See, Jesus is taken up for his boy. He says, do you think that John the Baptist is some kind of wimp that is hiding out in the wilderness? Absolutely not. Who do you think that John the Baptist is? Do you think he's weak and he's shaking under the weight of fear? Absolutely not. Do you think he's some kind of spoiled brat? Absolutely not. Do you think he's dressed in designer with the silver spoon in his mouth? Absolutely not. That is not 
who John the Baptist is. John is a prophet. John is a pioneer. John is the greatest human being ever. And Jesus goes on to say, John is someone that is so strong. He was willingly, he was willingly walking and doing his ministry in the middle of nowhere, the wilderness. So in a sense, John is like a hardcore missionary. John is surrendered to Jesus no matter what. He said, you want me to do uh, my ministry in obscurity? Well, I submit and I surrender and I say, yes, good luck finding somebody today that is willing to perform the entirety of their ministry in obscurity. And yet John the Baptist was him. You want to send me to a place where there ain't no social media? Got it. You want to send me to a place where I can't be made well known as a result of my obedience to you? Got it. I'll go serve you in obscurity if I have to because I don't care if man knows who I am. I know that I'm known by God. This is the reason why Jesus was like, there has been no other human being walked the face of the earth like John the Baptist. John is willing to go out into the wilderness. He's also willing to go without comfort. He's also willing to go without convenience. He's willing to be inconvenienced for the call of God that is resting upon his life. And he performs his entire ministry while endangered. He is under the constant threat of uh, being arrested and being killed by both the government, the political powers of his day, as well as the religious establishment of his day. He was a challenger. You know, when you look at paintings of John the Baptist, we see him preaching in that camel-haired loincloth, and he looks to be like 48 and a half years old. John was like 30. John's ministry was so powerful that it could only last for three years before it got snuffed out by religious and political powers. You have to understand that John the Baptist is an anointed, powerful, dynamic, prophetic person that has been handpicked by God. This man is awesome. Can we all agree? And yet... Where is he at? John is awesome, but he's in prison. John is powerful, but he's facing death. John is anointed, but he's preparing to be the very first martyr of Jesus Christ. He is incredible, and yet he is in an, he's in an agonizing spot. He's in a desperate place. He's in a terrible place, which is prison. And I think we could all agree that, my friends, is not supposed to happen. I feel like a lot of what I do as a pastor is I actually undo bad theology by preaching about situations just like this. Because if you look at everything through the filter of our Americanized, commercialized, glossy print, self-help Christianity, there is no way possible to reconcile John's great anointing with John's location of being in a prison and being miserable and questioning God. You, you just can't reconcile those two things and it doesn't really make sense. And a lot of times things like this, stories like these, they offend our minds because we don't think that it's actually possible that somebody who is so great would end up in their worst case scenario. But it happens all the time in the Bible church. Even though John was declared to be the best human ever, John suffered substantially, which Here's my first question to you today. If John, as well as so many others, and they're so great and so anointed, suffered so substantially, why are we so surprised when we have to suffer substantially? 
All of the heroes of the faith suffered substantially. There is no way that you can separate suffering from biblical Christianity. You would have to invent another gospel. If we are gonna live a life as a biblical Christian, it does not matter the culture we come in, come up in, it doesn't matter the nation that we're from, we are gonna go through bad days. We're gonna go through hard times, just like John the Baptist. And that's why we must be able to find joy in what God doesn't do. We must be able to find joy in what God doesn't do. Could you imagine for a moment the thought life of John the Baptist in this situation? He is sitting there between prison and platter and he is being attacked in his mind. Now we know that Jesus said he was neither soft nor was he shaken, but he was also human. So I would have to think that he would feel a little bit of fear. And whenever you are in the place of fear and you are replaying your worst case scenario in your mind, that's a bad spot. I heard somebody say one time, fear is just a demonized imagination. And so very possibly that's exactly what John the Baptist is going through. And he's asking these, himself these questions. Am I going to die? Wouldn't you be asking yourself that? Am I going to die today? Have I done what is right? Has my message been, been correct? Have I been theologically accurate? Has my prophetic gift been on target? Did I misdiagnose and discern wrongly who the Christ actually is? Was my message true? Is Jesus really the Messiah? Has Advent actually happened? John is in a place where he is very anointed and yet has hard questions for God. And let me tell you, church, it is possible to be very anointed and have hard questions for God. You might be in that place this morning yourself. It is very possible to be a prophet, to be a pioneer, to be anointed, to be awesome, to be dynamic, to be called by God into great things in the ministry and yet still have hard questions for God. Just because you have been greatly used by God does not mean that you will never greatly doubt God. Just because you've been greatly used by God does not mean that you will never greatly doubt God. If you look throughout scripture, all of our heroes got to a place just like John the Baptist and they said, have I done what is right? Is God gonna come through for me this time? I know I've seen him come through for me in the past, but is he gonna come through for me this time? Have I made the right choices? Was I really obedient to the voice of God in my life? Am I moving in the right direction? This happens. You can even consider the apostle Peter. Come on. Who is more sold out to the cause of Christ than the apostle Peter? I mean, this man is passionate. He is bossy. He is, you know, he's just filled with zeal. He's slicing people's ears off when they come to arrest Jesus. I mean, this guy's a passionate dude. And yet, where do we see him on the night that Jesus was arrested? Denying Jesus, not one time, two times, but three times. Dealing with doubt, dealing with with fear, which is why it's so important. Come on, people called by God. Come on, anointed, prolific, powerful, world-changing people who've been handpicked by God for something special. We must find out how to find joy in what God doesn't do. We have to find out what, 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 how to have joy in the midst of what God doesn't do. Now, I came across something I found to be very interesting in this scripture. 
Uh, because I'm, as, I'm, as I'm reading the story, I'm loving what I'm seeing from Jesus because I see Jesus defending his, his guy, John the Baptist, and he's, you know, saying all these amazing things about John to the crowds. And at one point in time, he actually quotes scripture. And so what he's doing is he's saying, John the Baptist is actually a fulfillment of a hundreds upon hundreds of uh, uh, years old prophecies that have been written down in the sacred book. I mean, this is a really cool fulfillment. John the Baptist is literally fulfilling Old Testament scripture and Jesus is reciting the scripture as he talks about John. That is amazing. But you know what I realized and I was very interest, interested by is that Jesus actually says all of these things after John's disciples departed. That fascinates me. I don't know if it does you because I would think to myself, oh, why didn't Jesus actually have them wait? But you see, in verse seven, it says, and after they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So whenever the disciples interviewed Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Jesus gives them a list of messianic credentials. It's almost like he unfolds his resume. And then he goes, okay, see you later. And so they walk away. And then after they're long gone, he stands up in front of the crowds and he starts proclaiming all of these amazing things about John. And I would think that Jesus would want John's disciples to hear all of those amazing things. And yet he let them walk away. Now, Jesus, you, you, you can't miss this. Jesus loves John. I think, I think we've established that. But one of the reasons for that is because John is actually Jesus's family. These two have known one another for their whole lives. You guys remember the story of Mary and Elizabeth having an interaction where John the Baptist is literally filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb? They have been friends even before birth. They were connected. So not only are they, you know, uh, friends, but they're also family. And John, this incredible prophet, has staked not only his reputation, but his entire life on proclaiming that his cousin Jesus is actually the Messiah and Advent has happened. And so as a result, he's been arrested for the things that he's been preaching. And now here he is about to become Jesus's first martyr. So you would think Jesus would say a few more nice words to his disciples and yet he just let him walk away. Maybe John the Baptist was sitting in prison thinking, I could use some more encouragement. I could use a few more statements about how you feel about me, Jesus. And yet Jesus said, that is enough. Go back to John and tell him what you hear and tell him what you see. See, John understood that, uh, Jesus understood that John did not need compliments. John did not need bumper sticker encouragement. John did not need fancy, churchy, religious colloquialisms. John didn't need compliments. John needed confirmations. It wasn't about compliments as to what John had accomplished. Jesus understood you need confirmations as to what God has accomplished. You don't need compliments as to who you are. You actually need confirmations as to who God is. Well, I, it's not that you need to hear me talk great about you. You need to hear me talk great about God because it's not gonna be your strength that's gonna help you overcome the prison. It is gonna be God's strength and God's strength alone. It is not your ability to work miracles that's gonna get you out of that space of fear. It is God's 
it's God's power and God's power alone. So he doesn't hit him with compliments. He actually gives him, he gives him confirmations. He begins to give him testimonies. And this is why I would say, church, not only do we need to be able to find joy in what God doesn't do, we need to be able to find joy in what God doesn't say. You ever been in that place before? You're like, God, speak to me. You're like, hold on, wait, you ain't, you ain't saying what I want you to say. I want to go there. You're telling me to go there. God, speak to me. You ever been there before? Like he has spoke to you, but here you are demanding a new word. Who are you to demand a new word from God if you've not obeyed the last one? (laughs) Speak to me, God. Do this thing for me, God. Operate on my timeline. You're late. Says who? Are you God's counselor? Is God submitted to your time frame? Is God required to speak to you when you think you need it? We must, church, we must be able to find joy in what God doesn't do, and we must be able to find joy in what God doesn't say. He doesn't do things on our timeline. He doesn't speak when we always want him to, but here's what Jesus did for John, and here's what Jesus will always do for you. What he says to you will always be enough. Just like Jesus uh, later, you know, God tells the apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. Don't examine what you lack. Celebrate what you got. The word you have is enough. Look at your neighbor, say it's enough. And so Jesus sent the disciples back to John and uh, he didn't send them away empty handed. It wasn't like he didn't answer John's questions at all. Jesus just sent them with something different. He sent them church with testimonies, not secondhand reports, eyewitness testimonies. He said, go back and I want you to tell John everything that you both hear and see because Jesus understands, of course, that this is how we overcome the devil. You don't overcome Satan with compliments. Somebody complimenting you is not going to motivate you enough to engage in spiritual warfare in such a way that causes you to become victorious over the enemy. You don't need compliments. You need testimonies. And this is why in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, God tells us, and they have conquered him. Who's him? Satan, the enemy, the devil. You have conquered him by what? The blood of the lamb, the one who has advented. What else? And the word of our testimony. When you're in a fight, you don't get out your biography. Let me tell you how awesome I am, devil. No, you don't get out your biography. You get out your testimonies. This is not about my strength and what I've done. This is about what Jesus has done and God's strength, the power of his blood and the victory that I walk in because of what he accomplished on the cross. We are well able to defeat the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And the Bible says, for they loved not their lives even unto death. It sounds like to me that somebody in the book of Revelation found out how to have joy in the midst of what God didn't do. The testimonies that Jesus sends John with, they're all full of fulfilled prophecies. They're not just like, hey, look at this cool stuff that I've done. It's actually 
a connection point between all of these Old Testament prophecies from the book of Isaiah about what it would look like whenever Messiah advented. So Jesus said, review the prophecies because I am him. You don't need to look for another because I am the one that was to come, that is to come that will be here. I am the Messiah. That is what Jesus is telling John the Baptist. He's saying, look, here's my testimonies. The blind receive their sight. The the, the lame are starting to walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have the gospel. They have the good news that are being preached to them. There's no doubt in my mind that would have triggered a memory from John the Baptist. Oh, 700 years previous, Isaiah prophesied this about the Messiah, that whenever the Messiah would advent, these things would begin to take place. Let's read those prophecies. Uh, Chapter 35 of Isaiah. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Isaiah didn't say this, but you know, when Jesus was whipping up his recipe, he went ahead and threw in an additional ingredient and the dead are being raised. Just so that you know, everything that has been prophesied about me, I've done it plus. I'm doing all that stuff and I'm raising the dead. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Why? Because the Lord has anointed me to do what? To bring the gospel to the poor. Jesus is again affirming John's question, I am him. I did that. I'm the Messiah. The Messiah is here. The Lord has advented. He's confirming every last question that John the Baptist has. And then when he does that, he then gives John the Baptist the last word he ever speaks to his beloved friend. This is the last words. Think about it, church. These are the last words that John the Baptist hears from Christ Jesus before he is executed. The last thing that reaches the ears of John the Baptist in prison is this. And, and, notice this. And, I just love how Jesus tacks this on. He's like, I've given you all of my messianic credentials. And by the way, and blessed is he who is not offended by me. And blessed, that word means happy, by the way. Blessed is he who is not offended by what I don't do. And blessed is he who is offended, who is not offended by what I don't say. And blessed is he who is able to find joy in what I don't do. Those were the last words that ever reached the ears of John the Baptist from the Christ. And they are beautiful words. They are such beautiful words. What is happening here is that John the Baptist actually gets his own original beatitude. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that so beautiful and poetic that Jesus would give his friend, John the Baptist, the one that is greater than any other human being, his very own beatitude? Think about it. Matthew chapter five. What are the beatitudes? Jesus gives us a list. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, church, the, the Beatitudes belong to the suffering. The Beatitudes are those scriptures that you read and you don't really connect so well with unless you're going through something. If you find yourself in a prison, open your Bible to Matthew chapter five. If somebody happens to watch this uh, on YouTube from prison, open the Bible to Matthew chapter five and listen and let Jesus speak blessings over your life because those words are for the suffering and these words were for his friend, John the Baptist. He said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We've already covered this. Blessed means happy, but guess what it also means? Joyful. Remember our theme for today is joy. You might be thinking, how in the world, how in the world could I walk in joy whenever God doesn't do what I want him to do? How is it even possible for me to walk in joy when God doesn't say what I want him to say? But that's how the Amplified Version says it, Matthew eleven six. And blessed, joyful, favored by God is he who does not take offense at me. We must be able, church, to find joy in what God doesn't do. I hate to tell you, but life will arrange your very own Good Friday. You will go through some stuff. You're gonna, you're gonna have some hard times. You may even find yourself in some type of metaphysical prison like John the Baptist. And, and during these moments, when God doesn't do what you want him to do, you've gotta be able to find joy. In fact, God will often do the opposite of what you wanna do. You know why? Because he's God and you're not. He's on his own timetable, not on mine. God will often do the opposite of what you think he should. He will often say the opposite of what you think he should say. He will often be found hanging out with the people you think he should run away from. Oh, that's a whole nother sermon. Blessed is he who is not offended at me. Are you offended by the people that God decides to bless? Well, why would he bless that person? They're not actually very righteous. Well, why would Jesus uh, visit that church? I know there are a whole lot of hypocrites that go to that church. Why would Jesus bless that pastor? I heard that he fell 10 years ago. Oh, it got all quiet real quick. I, how often do we get offended by what Jesus decides to do? How often do we get offended by who Jesus decides to bless? How often do we get offended by who Jesus decides to speak to or speak through? Come on, we gotta take the limitations off of God. It may not always come in the package that you expect, but it doesn't mean that God won't use it. We've gotta be able to find joy and not be offended in, in, what, in what God doesn't do. He may not deliver you on your timeline. You may be in your worst case scenario, but God is still God and church, God is still good. That is who he is. And if you'll choose not to be offended by what God doesn't do, you are blessed, God says, and you have access to eternal heavenly joy, Amen. God says. Now, let me give you a definition of what 
uh, joy is, according to the dictionary of Bible themes. It says a quality or attitude of delight and happiness, which is ultimately grounded in the work of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let's pause right there for a second. Does God tell us that in order to receive joy, his joy, it is entirely based upon our ability to receive it? He doesn't. Walking in the joy of the Lord is not limited by your ability to receive it. Because it is not by your works do you have access to eternal joy. Joy is grounded in the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, not in my ability to obey God and live righteously. That means as long as I have access to Jesus, I, ha I have access to joy. I am always able to receive the joy of the Lord, not on the basis of what I've done, even if I've been on my best behavior recently. That's not what gives me access to joy. What gives me access to joy is what Jesus has done on the cross. And because of his work, I have access to joy. It goes on and says, among the situation in which joy is experienced, Scripture recognizes as supreme being accepted. Somebody say, I am accepted. In the presence of God. As long as you have access to the presence of God, you have access to joy. Tell me when you've been cut off from the presence of God. Or did Jesus rip the veil in two once and for all? Is Jesus our great high priest or is he not? He is. And because of what he's done, we have an all access pass into the joy of the Lord because of what he accomplished on the cross. And because we always have access to Jesus, we always have access to joy. Just like I told you in week one, peace is a person. Hey, joy is a person too. If you can take hold of Jesus, you can take hold of joy. If you have access to his presence, you have access to holy, heavenly, eternal joy. Psalm chapter 16. We have access to his presence at his right hand. Pleasures forevermore. That's there in the presence. We have access to that. It may not make sense to our own understanding, church, but if, if you are a believer, then you have access to joy no matter your circumstance. Because Jesus died, I can have joy no matter my situation. The work of God will never be limited by your prison. Never. Because I've been accepted by God, I have access to his presence and I have access to joy forever. So let me give you three points real quick as we're closing. How to find joy when God doesn't do what you want him to do. Number one is don't tie your joy to your life experiences, tie it to Jesus. If you tie your joy to life experiences, anything other than Jesus, then you'll lose joy when you lose that thing. But the great news is, church, you'll never lose Jesus because he said, Paul quoted this from Deuteronomy in Hebrews chapter 13, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. I'm always here for you and I will not abandon you. So don't, don't tie your joy to people aside from him. Don't 
tie your joy to possessions and don't tie your joy to life experiences. Habakkuk chapter three said this about rejoicing. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor the fruit be on the vines nor the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Let's go through that again. Though the stock market be down and I don't have any new shoes in my closet and Bitcoin looks like it's failing and my car just got repossessed and my boss let me know that I've got two weeks left of work and my marriage is on the rocks. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. My joy is not tied to a life experience. My joy is tied to Jesus. Number two, offense is a trap. Do not get stuck in it because there is no joy there. There is no joy in the trap of offense. Here's the recipe to make a bad day worse. Get offended by what God doesn't do. Here's the thing. Playing the victim before God will never elicit his deliverance. Surely God is near and dear to the brokenhearted. That's Psalm chapter 34, verse 16. But he is not activated to go to work for us when we decide to throw a pity party. It's not my complaint that moves the heart of God. It's my faith. It's saying, I've got testimonies. Not, I've got complaints. It's saying, I've got the blood of the lamb that I'm gonna apply to my situation. Not, I'm down on myself and God's done it to me again. I'm a victim. I don't think, I, I, I don't know. I mean, this is my own opinion. I don't know if God attends pity parties as often as demons are SVP. Demons love to attend a good pity party. Yeah, you're right. You are the victim. God didn't really say. In fact, he don't like you. Look where you're at. Look where they're at. Look what he said. Look what he didn't say. I mean, I, I don't know. If, I hope demons don't sound like that to you. My voice, I hope you don't hear that when you start feeling attacked. But I appreciate you guys, you know, accepting my parable. Uh, the, Greek word, the Greek word for offense is called scandalon. Scandalon. Uh, I like to say it like this. There's a scandal on because that's exactly what offense is. Offense is a scandal. And if you look in the original uh, language, uh, Greek, scandalon, it illustrates a picture, which is a trap. You remember watching cartoons back in the day? You see those big bear traps? That's what I think of it as. It's a scandal of a trap. That's what offense is. Now, I know you can't always control when you are offended, but you can control whether or not you will stay offended. And if you choose to stay offended, Here's what I can guarantee. You will get stuck. You will not be able to progress forward and you will not have any joy in that trap. 
because there is no joy in the trap of offense. There is only complacency and stagnancy. That is all that exists in the place of offense. John the Baptist may have actually stayed in prison for the remainder of his life, but he was set free in that moment from the prison in his mind. He stepped out of that trap. He said, ah, I ain't going to be in that scandal. I ain't going to be caught in that trap. I'm going to move forward and I'm going to choose joy because I'm going to find joy even in what God doesn't do. And I couldn't help but to think about Paul and Silas in prison in Acts chapter 16 after thinking about the, the fetters and the trap. And I thought, oh man, Paul and Silas, they got trapped as well. And about midnight one night, Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, what'd they do? They started praying and they started singing. They started rejoicing. They started releasing hymns. So if offense is a prison, then rejoicing is a chain breaker. Rejoice in the Lord and get set free of that prison. Get set free of that circumstance. Number three, even on your worst day, make a deliberate decision to rejoice in the work of Christ. Even on your worst day, y'all remember singing this in Sunday school? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Okay, so that was just my holiness Pentecostal Sunday school, I guess. That's Philippians chapter four, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. What does rejoice mean? It means to have joy again. Rejoice, like remember, rejoice. You had joy before, where did it go? Jesus haven't, hasn't left you. Rejoice. Remember that Jesus is here. Therefore, joy is here. Joy is as available to you as Jesus is. So come before him and rejoice in what he has done. He saved you. He's redeemed you. He's eternally restored you. Instead of being offended by what you don't see God doing, rejoice in what you know God has done. First Peter four, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. James chapter one, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds because you're gonna go through them. And get this, when John the Baptist was waiting on Jesus to work for him, Jesus reminded John about how he was working for others. And this is, I think, a key. I didn't give it its own point, maybe I should have, but I think this is actually a key to so many things in the Christian life. If you can't find a reason to have joy because of what God has done for you, look for what God has done for others and rejoice in the fact that the mute sing, the lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. I may not be able to recognize what God is doing in my life in the moment, but I certainly recognize what God is doing in Zenon's life, in Bouquet's life. I mean, I can just go down and just say, oh, and start celebrating. And then what happens? I'm rejoicing and I've got joy and then I'm walking in what Jesus has given me access to. Rejoice. 
Job 8 and 21 says this. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Somebody say, I'll take that. Come on, let's stand together. You know, I thought I'd read you one scripture as we closed up here. And it's a good one because you are going to get to hear something that John never got to hear. Look at verse 11 real quick. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom, everybody say, that's me, is greater than John. John looked ahead and he realized, I may give my life today, but I do know that because of Advent, Jesus is going to empower a new generation of new covenant believers that are going to have access to eternal joy no matter their circumstance. So let's pray. Lord, we say thank you for joy. Thank you for joy. Thank you for eternal, holy, heavenly joy. Thank you for the fruit of the Spirit that is joy. Thank you that it's not just a feeling, but it's actually a fruit. And because I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, I can have joy. Listen, if you can pray in tongues on demand, you can have joy on demand. Because it flows from the same place. It flows from the same Spirit. Rejoice. And again, I say always, rejoice. Lord, we thank you for the joy that overcomes the enemy. And today we choose it, not not in a new age way, like, you know, we see those Instagram posts, choose joy today. Well, I can't choose joy unless I can choose Jesus. I can't choose to feel, I can't force myself to feel things, but I can surely invite Jesus into my life. And so if you need Jesus to advent into your heart again right now, Now's a great time to ask him. Now's a great time to meet with him. And now's a great time to receive the joy that he has for you. Lord, we love you and we bless you in Jesus' name today. And the church said, amen. come on, can we bless the Lord together? Amen and amen and amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Legacy Nashville podcast. If you'd like to support the ministry, you can do so at LegacyNashville.org forward slash give. If you're listening on iTunes, log into the store and give us a good rating and review. This helps our podcast reach new people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Until next week, love God, love people, and go change the world.